Welcome to the Art of Climate Dialogue Stories from Iowa, produced by myself, Vivian M. Cook, and the Eco Theater Lab. And welcome to today's conversation with Lynn County Sustainability Director and Community Engaged Climate Researcher, Tamara Marcus. I was back visiting my grandparents' farm. So my grandparents own a century farm in eastern Iowa, which is a farm that's been in the family for over at least 100 years. And I was back in small town Iowa visiting my family and I ran into one of our family's friends and he was asking, you know, what I did and I was a student at the time and so he was asking what I was studying. And I said climate change and he immediately wanted to, you know, launch into this conversation and really a debate about whether or not climate change was real and, you know, having studied climate change at this point for over a decade, I was used to this kind of response to to what it is I spend my time doing, especially in this part of the world. And so, you know, I, I entertained his questions and his facts that he was sharing with me for some time. And then I asked him what he did. And he told me that he was a mechanic. And I said, oh, okay, well, um, I have a car. And sometimes that car doesn't work. Something's wrong with the car and I need to fix it. And so, you know, kind of my first, depending on what's wrong with it, you know, I'll do some Googling, ask some friends, see if they have any recommendations or can help me out. But if that doesn't work, then, you know, I'll, I'll take it to a mechanic because I recognize that this is the space and field that they're an expert in and I need their help. I need their knowledge, their perspective. And so, you know, I, I kind of offer this to um, to the gentleman as, as kind of, you know, not reason or means to take everything I said, you know, 100% at face value, certainly not that. But to really demonstrate that, you know, we all kind of are experts in our own spaces and we all need the information and knowledge of one another to really exist in this world, right? And it was incredible how that kind of framing was disarming, how disarming that was for that gentleman. And the conversation immediately shifted to one where, you know, it was kind of recognizing each other's kind of lane, so to speak, and and having this kind of newfound humility to to the process and to that conversation and we left that conversation not you know agreeing with one another and not having changed each other's mind but we left that conversation with exchanging contact information and so you know now there's this person who every now and again will send me an article and I'll send them an article and I don't think again that to this point that we've convinced each other of the other way of of viewing the situation or the issue, but I do think that what we have is an open conversation, an open dialogue around the topic, and one that I certainly benefit from, if only knowing what types of news information this person is, is reading and coming across, and I hope vice versa. So I think that's just a really good example of kind of, you know, taking that extra pause and trying to think of, you know, how are, what are the ways that I can connect to this person who might not have had the same experiences as me, the same access to information as me, and what can I learn from them, you know, through that process as well. Addressing climate change is urgent, but in order to move toward action, we first have to find ways to talk about climate change with one another. 
The Art of Climate Dialogue, Stories from Iowa, is a podcast series featuring 13 conversations with artists, farmers, community-engaged researchers, and community organizers and activists who have all used arts and storytelling strategies to talk about climate change and agriculture. Through this podcast, they generously share these strategies so that listeners can implement them in their own communities. I'm Vivian, and I invite you to explore the art of climate dialogue with me. As we enter into these conversations around climate action, sustainable agriculture, and community-engaged arts in Iowa, the Eco Theater Lab and I want to first recognize that Indigenous nations have been leaders in such conversations for centuries and continue to be today. Iowa now occupies the homelands of Native American nations to whom we owe our commitment and dedication. Iowa is now situated on the homelands and trading routes of the Iowa, Meskwaki, and Sauk, Oto, Omaha, Ihankdawan, and Santee. And because history is complex and time goes far back beyond memory, we also acknowledge the ancient connections of many other indigenous peoples here. The history of broken treaties and forced removal that dispossess indigenous peoples of their homelands was and is an act of colonization and genocide that we cannot erase. And as a result, indigenous ecosystems within Iowa have suffered from extraction, degradation, and unsustainable agricultural practices, contributing to the ongoing climate crisis. Understanding and addressing these injustices is critical as we work toward climate dialogue, action, and justice in our communities. My thanks to podcast interviewees, Shelley Buffalo, enrolled member of the Meskwaki tribe, Lance Foster, enrolled member and tribal historian of the Iowa tribe of Kansas and Nebraska, and Sakawa's Nobis, Plains Cree Soto of the George Gordon First Nation for their collaboration in developing this acknowledgement. Tamara Marcus currently serves as the Lynn County Sustainability Director. Previously, they were a Fulbright Scholar, where they completed two years of climate change research in the Indian Himalaya, working with local communities to translate her physical science research into local conservation policy. Tam is a PhD candidate in the Natural Resources and Earth System Sciences PhD program at the University of New Hampshire. Her research interests include using bioinformatic techniques to understand the impact of warming on microbial mediation of carbon emissions from Arctic lakes. Additionally, she studies how indigenous communities access weather and climate data to better understand how to make results from climate research more accessible and applicable to individuals and communities. Using a combination of survey data and storytelling, Tam works with Sami communities and Indigenous Australians to record environmental change observed by the traditional owners of the land. Through this work, they hope to promote collaborative development of conservation policy by both scientists and Indigenous communities. Tam has been a Switzer Fellow, a NASA New Hampshire Space Grant Fellow, and a National Center for Atmospheric Research Fellow, and completed her BS in Biochemistry and English from the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. I'm excited to share our conversation with y'all today. Welcome, Tam, to the podcast, and thank you for being here today to chat with me for a little while. Thank you, Vivian. So this story that you told us at the beginning of the episode 
is an example of how you approach climate communication in much of the work you do. So finding ways to meet people where they're at and to connect people to each other and to the data in a personable, applicable way. So you've been doing this work in the Indian Himalayas, Australian Outback, Swedish Arctic, and in your hometown of Cedar Rapids in Iowa for many years. What drew you to study climate science and then to work with local communities to take climate action? Yeah, that's a really good question. And and thank you so much for allowing me the opportunity to share some of my story with, with you today. It's hard to pinpoint the start of a journey, right? Or the start of the story. That's half the half the challenge sometimes. But I guess for today, I'll start at, you know, wanting to be able to do good in the world. That was my motivator for pursuing research as a whole. I quickly found my space or found my place in climate research because the urgency of this issue, right? For me, it demanded my attention, I suppose. And so I was very fortunate to have some research experiences internationally around this topic, which allowed me to kind of see different perspectives on the issue as well. And I'm very thankful and fortunate for having had those experiences, I think. And so kind of, you know, I would say the way that I approach climate change research, though, has been a little bit different, in part because of the storytelling piece, right? identifying that this is kind of a necessary part of the work because most people are not climate scientists. And if we want to actually take climate action, we need most people to be on board. Right. And so, you know, I think when I started my PhD program, it was during the Trump presidency. And so climate change was a topic and it had been before then, but especially then, you know, with the, with the U S being removed from the Paris agreement was a, a topic in conversation, you know, at the forefront of most circles. Right. And so I remember being in this room with 50 climate scientists from across the world, which make up our research group that works in currently in the Swedish Arctic. So scientists from Australia, Sweden, universities from across the U S all in this room listening to Trump remove the U.S. from the Paris Agreement. And there was very little acknowledgement of our role in that, which I found to be, yeah, (laughs) exactly. (gasps) Especially as an early career researcher, I found that to be incredibly troubling because for one part, where most of our research is funded by taxpayer dollars, you kind of really do need people to, to buy into this work at some level. But then, you know, more importantly, because we're the ones who have the data and information to actually incite change, right? We're such an important part of that process. And to just kind of not recognize that or understand it or rise to the occasion, you know, was just was surprising to me, shocking to me. And it was something that, you know, I I really held with me as like kind of a a reminder and like a challenge to make this work more meaningful to people who were not scientists, right? And so, you know, that led me into into kind of more of the storytelling space of, around climate research, specifically trying to look at how we engage communities that have often been left out of the conversation. Can you tell us a little bit more about your specific research and what specific areas of climate science you study and are most interested in and and how you're working on exploring those topics in community with the people you work with? Yeah, definitely. Most of my research 
up in, until the last couple of years, honestly, has been more physical science focused. And so looking at how microbial communities um, in lake sediments in the Swedish Arctic are metabolizing new carbon as a result of permafrost thaw. So you have, you know, this ancient carbon that's been locked up into these frozen, locked up and frozen into the into the land, right, into these ecosystems that as a result of an increase in rising temperatures near the poles, now this permafrost is thawing. And so all of that old carbon can then flow into these lake systems where there are all these microbes waiting, just waiting for it to settle. And also, you know, there's some stuff happening in the water column, but I won't get into that. Um, so these microbes waiting for this old carbon to, you know, flow into the lakes and then basically eating it up and farting it out as greenhouse gases, some of which are CO2 and methane. And so most of my work has been related to understanding those systems. But increasingly so, I've been shifting to trying to understand how our research group specifically, but how Western scientists as a whole can build more meaningful connections with the local indigenous communities in northern Sweden, so the Sami. And so trying to find ways where we can honestly address some of these historical injustices to promote healing, to allow us to be able to do this collaborative research. Thank you for giving a little bit more background on what you're doing and also who you're trying to do that research with that Mm -hmm. is maybe a different story about research than the one that's often shown in academic settings Mm -hmm. about who research is for, who research is with, what qualifies as research. And I know you've talked a lot about recognizing and embracing that there are a lot of different perspectives and kinds of knowledge and kinds of research and that that is all really important to be able to deal with these problems that are incredibly far reaching Mm -hmm. and affect all of us. Absolutely. Um, and connect us all to each other. So what do you hope your research leads to? You know, I kind of touched on it in the last answer, but healing, you know, I think that sometimes, and and for not bad reasons, but sometimes we collectively get ahead of ourselves, right? And so we find this problem and there's this like immediate desire, if you're someone like me at least, to want to fix it. And Sometimes the things that really need the attention, that really need to be fixed, aren't problems that we, a lot of times, they're not problems that we personally or individually have created. But not acknowledging them and recognizing them before doing the thing that you really want to work on, right? Not acknowledging the atmosphere and environment around that can be really damaging. And so even if your intentions are good, right, you go in as like a a West, using myself as an example, you go in as a Western scientist saying, hey, I really want to understand how some Sami are traditionally reindeer herders, right? And so you can appreciate through that process, that kind of observational knowledge that is built throughout generations as it relates to snow cover, snow type, snow timing, right? There's all of this information that, you know, would be super valuable to apply to a lot of questions that Western scientists working in those spaces have. But what do they get for doing that? And more importantly, what has been taken from them in the past as a result of maybe engaging in this type of research, right? What trauma is there? And so I guess big picture 
at the end of my lifetime, maybe at the end of the next generation's lifetime. Now we're all kind of understanding, you know, we have a deeper understanding of snow because we've we've addressed some of this this harm and this trauma. But realistically, within where, where I am now in my research, I'm honestly just trying to find better ways for us as Western scientists to really understand that historical context, right, in this one location, right? <laughs> so this is obviously not mm-hmm. happening only in northern Sweden. We know that this is happening across the globe. And so I guess I just, for me personally, I want to focus on the thing that I really think needs fixing right now. And those are those are relationships. And it sounds like not only are you invested in the content of the research and climate science that you've been working with, but how you're doing it absolutely becomes the real research absolutely <laughs> that you want to pass on. So like you said, the major focus of your research lately has been on these relational aspects mm-hmm. and understanding the social cultural context around gathering research in the first place. So you've been working to engage community members in climate dialogue and developing local climate policy using storytelling as a way to build relationships with community members across the globe. Mm-hmm. Like you said, especially those who have been marginalized and whose knowledge of climate and related policy has often been ignored. So can you walk us through your storytelling-based approach to this work? Yeah. So I guess I'll use the example of kind of how I started it within this, again, one kind of more specific space. So when I started my program, my advisor had gotten her PhD working in the same location that I was working in. And her advisor had been working there for his whole life. And at no point had anyone in their research groups really engaged the indigenous, the Sami community which I thought was so wild, right? And so I came into a place where the thing that I actually, or a thing that I actually wanted to do, there wasn't really a pathway that existed for me to to be able to do that. And so it required an incredible amount of advocacy on my part to even like get senior fellows to appreciate that what I was trying to do was worth doing, right? And so, and so I've been kind of the catalyst, I think, for our research group for, for starting this work. I guess I, I share that in the beginning because I think it gives context to why my process is what it is. And so in this example, you know, it was me, again, advocating to my advisor, which she was supportive of. So it, wasn't, it was less her and more of the, our larger research group. And then also seeking funding outside of what my research was already funded to do to be able to spend you know, extra time in the country to be able to develop these relationships. And so, you know, again, there was no roadmap for how to do this. And so my plan was to, and what I did, was to go earlier ahead of our typical sampling season. So sampling looks like, you know, taking sediment samples, for example, for those microbial analyses, things like that, maybe some remote sensing, some flying drones, stuff like that, depending on the needs of our group at that time. So I went ahead of that traditional sampling season and just spent a week there. And a lot of that week was 
really spending time connecting to the land. And so I would go, you know, there's midnight sun, it's above the Arctic Circle. And so I'd go on midnight hikes. I would run with the reindeer, you know, in the morning and and jump into the Mm -hmm. lake. And really trying to like, feel what it would be like to live here, right? To feel that connection to the land. And then after that, you know, I'd researched some Sami museums. And so I started there at one of them. The gentleman was actually, you know, around at that time. And so I spoke with the staff at the museum and kind of figured out when he would be around. I came back the next day and, you know, just let the staff know like, hey, I'm here. I'm interested in in chatting with this person. Do you mind if, could you just let them know that I'm here whenever, if they have time? And so they said they would. And so I, I waited. Um, I saw that, you know, the woman went up and and let him know, presumably told him, you know, what I had said. And, you know, he had work to do. And so he did what he needed to do. And I just kind of hung around, you know, and I got lunch Mm -hmm. and all that good stuff. And eventually, you know, it comes over. And this was after probably a couple hours of just existing there, just patiently waiting. Um, He comes over and he offers me coffee and this is one of my rules of engagement, right? Like if someone offers you a hot beverage, tea, coffee, a hot goat milk, you know, you take it, right? You take the offer. Right. Because <laughs> it's significant. Like that is often the first sign in so many cultures, right? Of like, hey, I'm offering you food or drink, right? This is like basically extending like an olive branch. And so Mm -hmm. we had coffee and, you know, I introduced myself. I told him a little bit of what I was doing, but honestly, it was more of just like, hey, I really want to just connect with you. And so, you know, I asked him, what's your story? He kind of like, you know, laughed at that, that question of like, wow, that's a a (laughs) question, you know, and, but, you know, people always, always find their way with that question because usually they'll respond to something that means something to them. And then you just listen, you know, you just listen to what means something to them. And then, you know, you I remind people not to overcomplicate it because really what you're doing is just trying to be a friend to someone. That's kind of what I do. And so inevitably someone will say something that I find interesting or connects to something that I care about or whatever. It's just, it's just like a conversation. And we talked for, you know, two, three hours that afternoon very little about the research itself because how do I know if it's a good fit? You know what I mean? Like I can't, it would be inappropriate for me to go into that space and say, Hey, I'm Tam. I'm studying microbes in the Arctic and I want you to like come out and I don't know, do what? Right. And I found out in that conversation too, actually, one of the cool takeaways was that he actually cared about permafrost thaw. He actually cared about the things I cared about, right? And so who would have known, right? So anyway, that's kind of my process. Yeah, and it sounds like intentionally not making assumptions about what people care about or that there is going to be trust without any efforts to make trust or to discover what, yeah, what people's stories are, what is meaningful to them. I think you told me when we were talking earlier this week that if you just come in and say, here's this tool and use it, then there's no 
there is no meaningful connection to it necessarily. You first have to build this foundation of, okay, this is what I care about. This is what I do. How do we build those connections? And then eventually you get to permafrost thaw. Exactly. In our conversation that wasn't intended to get to permafrost the thaw. Exactly. <laughs> eventually we'll find ways, yeah, to share resources and share information. Absolutely. Thank you for walking us through that explanation. I think that's really helpful. It's helpful for me to hear how to not overcomplicate it, that it takes time. That relationship building takes a lot of time, Yeah. but it doesn't necessarily have to be complicated. It has to be authentic exactly (laughs) you have to genuinely want to get to know people and research you know most research structures funding tenure expectations publishing like it is very challenging to account for that time you know what I mean for the time it takes to even get to the point where you can start to say okay what are our research questions there's not a lot of funding that's just like hey do community engagement for, you know, a year or two years before you start this project. And so that's, I think that's a space where funding agencies have the potential to grow around that need because the projects that you see coming out of, you know, those really long-term dedicated work groups that do have that diversity, those are like really impressive. That's really impressive research, right? And so the quality, Mm -hmm. like when you do it, it's worth it. It's just, there's not a lot of incentive or, or structure that exists that kind of encourages that relationship building piece of it. Absolutely. And I've talked to other people who are doing similar work or who are invested in community engaged, be it research or just community engaged work in any way that are facing those kinds of barriers where there's just not under, there's not an understanding of the time it takes to build relationships, even though I think we all can recognize in our own lives that the relationships we have did not happen overnight. (laughs) And the people we trust, we didn't just trust them the first time we saw them. And that that happens in not only academic spaces, but in, I think, cities and in nonprofits and in a lot of other spaces that we're trying to do this work in. So can you talk a little bit more about the barriers you've encountered while trying to use these storytelling based approaches and how you've pushed against those barriers? Yeah, I would say the biggest barrier honestly is older scientists. And and honestly, I don't know if I would even have if I can give like strong recommendations about how to navigate that other than there are so many researchers in every field that you will find someone who wants to do the work that you want to do and shares the values that you have. So there was a instance, for example, where a senior fellow, and I won't say his name, obviously, but like I share this story because it, even if he'll hear it, and so I kind of hope he does hear it because, yeah, I think it was, it was not appropriate in any way. And so I don't know, this is maybe like an academic horror story, but I think it's important to be aware of, as you said, some of these barriers, right? And so I had put in a land acknowledgement, an acknowledgement of country on one of my research posters that I was presenting. And I'd sent it to my co-authors and one of the co-authors replied all and said, I don't want the land acknowledgement on the poster. So take that off or take my name off the poster. And this was a person who was like, is a like highly respected in his field. 
yes, just a well-known person who is definitely a decision maker leading, you know, leading the field at some level, saying this to a early career woman of color on a reply all in the email who's advocating for indigenous acknowledgement. And, you know, no one, no other author said anything, at least like to the whole group. Maybe they said something to him directly and that was it. But many of them sent me personal emails and saying, oh, that's too bad or that's not okay, you know, expressing some kind of remorse. And then even some people, you know, I saw at the conference came up and, and spoke with me about it. And so another important part of the story that I want to highlight is the value of speaking up, especially when you mm-hmm. witness stuff like this. Like, I do think that the more senior co-authors, especially the ones that were saying it to me personally, should certainly have said it to him. And so I say that to say that if you're ever you know, in a situation where something like that happens, people will remember all of that, right? I remember people not standing up for me. I'm sure, you know, the gentleman remembers no one standing and saying anything to him. And so that will just keep happening, Mm -hmm. which is part of the reason why I think, you know, some of this work is like side-eyed by the older scientists. But, you know, this phenomenon isn't unique, I guess, to academia, right? So that's a barrier that I think, you know, people should be aware of. And honestly, kind of circling back, it's like, I just found different people that, did value this work. And Mm -hmm. I dug in with them, you know, I worked with them. And the work is better. It's more fun. It's more uh, fulfilling. You know what I mean? So, you know, I look back at that, and and it was awful in some ways. But also, it taught me a really good lesson of, you know, the things that you believe in, you probably believe in them for good reason, right? And so, Right. If someone is pushing back, listen, you know, the feedback could be helpful. But once you determine if it is or not, you know, and and you have your direction that you want to go and your conviction of of the work that you want to do, there will be people who will meet you there. Right. And do that work with you. So don't feel don't feel stuck, I guess, is like a recommendation, I guess I would give for how to kind of navigate that space and also know that it's coming because it's different and people always resist doing things in new ways. Thank you for that. Cause I think also that one throughout this podcast series, I think this idea of remembering that you're not alone in doing this work is really important because this work working for climate action in general, but I think especially when we're using some of these strategies that aren't actually new per se, but are seen as new in like academic settings or something that it can feel kind of isolating, but that there are other people who recognize the value in community engaged work and relationship building and recognize how much time it takes and that that time is really valuable. So thank you for sharing that story. It's, it is, yeah, I think a little horror story. but is helpful to hear, right? That that part of this work is also advocating to tell people's stories and to make space for other narratives. Absolutely. And that is like the piece that we, when we talk about capacity building, right? Like a lot of, and especially like stories and narratives from individuals that again have been marginalized, right? 
even in like my work at the county, right, which I know we'll get into a little bit later, but like I just think of all of the people who, you know, I ask to speak on something because they mm-hmm. have lived through this or have been on the ground and because they're not an elected official or, you know, a public official or whatever, you know what I mean? Like they think that their story doesn't matter and they don't see sometimes they it's challenging for them to see like the value of like having that perspective and so yeah you're exactly right like part of this work is trying to like encourage and help people see that what they've lived through what they've experienced does have value and does deserve to be shared Mm -hmm. and heard by everyone yeah you said earlier when you were describing your research process or well the storytelling process that leads to your research too is is when you were speaking to the staff member at the museum and you said, what's your story? Then at first he kind of laughed and was taken aback because maybe people don't ask that question or we're not expected to ask that question, even though it has a lot of value and can clearly lead to the conversations that are going to be most relevant mm-hmm. in solving the problems we need to solve. Yep. You mentioned, okay, your work at the county, and I actually want to talk more about that as well. So you not only work as a researcher, but also in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, you work as the Lynn County Sustainability Director. So can you talk a little bit about how you apply the storytelling approaches that you're using in your research to your role as Sustainability Director? You know, I think as we all probably know who are listening to this, stories are powerful. So I am a data scientist, right? But most people are not moved by numbers. And so, you know, when County Sustainability has released a greenhouse gas inventory report, for example, I suspect that most people have not read that cover to cover, right? Which is okay, because, you know, there's a lot there. It requires like a specific type of interest. And it's a tool for tracking as well, right? So it's not necessarily the only benefit is just to like read it, even if some people might want to do that. For a community that's experienced several natural disasters that are arguably climate driven in just a less than a couple of decades, right? A very short period of time. This work needs to be made relevant in every way possible. Climate action work needs to be made relevant in every way possible for all of the reasons, for the costs, right? $11 billion of record-breaking FEMA storm. And the second record-breaking FEMA storm at one point, the the flood of 2008 was on the top three. Now it's not even on the top 10, right? Because of all of the other national disasters. But we made the list again, right? Lynn County made the list again with the derecho. And so, you know, when we think about things like environmental justice, right, climate justice, people, even in this community, will say, oh, well, Flint, Michigan. And, you know, you're like, no, 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 the derecho is a terribly great example of the disproportionate impacts of disaster events on communities of color, right? You had some mm-hmm. people who had a hole in their house and then on the west side of our, of our community completely demolished, right? Houses, mobile homes, apartment complexes smashed. And so this goes back to, you know, we were doing this panel about resiliency at some point at Lynn County. And we were talking about a a new report that had been released. And so we had, you know, the author of the report as a panelist. We had 
someone who works uh, for a local nonprofit as a panelist, a supervisor from the Board of Supervisors, Lynn County Board of Supervisors. And then I had asked, and I won't say their name because I don't know if they want me to say it, but another person who was on the ground on the West Side to be a panelist. And they said, you know, why would you, why, why me? And I said, well, you were helping families on the ground and helping get them connected to resources after the storm and like walking with them the whole time. Like what you did, what you saw, what you heard, you know what I mean? Like that is not very few people in our community saw, heard, or did that. Right. And so people want to know what that was like and and if you are willing to share that you are under no obligation to share that because that's also traumatic right and so there's work and and having to do that but if you share that people will care people will listen because that is a perspective Mm -hmm. very few people had but we've all heard about it right and so this person was like oh I've never been on a panel and so, you know, I was like, well, it's okay. Like, you know, come into my office and we'll, we'll kind of talk things through and see if it's a good fit, you know? And so they came in and, you know, I just started asking them questions. So what was it like after, what did you think immediately following the storm? You know, and then based off of what they responded, right. I would ask another probing question. Right. And just like modeling what that would feel like and look like, without saying, okay, now you're going to get this list of questions and you're going right, to, right. and then this person's going to ask this and then you're going to say, no, right? Like starting at the place to help, help this person understand the power of their story, you know, and that's all I really could do and, and, you know, needed to do because the story itself, you know what I mean? Like that was the powerful piece, right? We just did a little prep. And then after that, I kind of was like, so that's kind of what a panel would feel like. I was like, oh, okay, well, this is like something that's manageable. I I can do this, right? They did a great job on the panel, as expected. That was a a narrative, a perspective that would not have been included, that was desperately needed in that conversation. And hopefully the next time this person is asked to be on a panel, they'll have that newfound confidence and thinking, yeah, my story is worth sharing. You know, it does matter. Yeah, definitely. What was the response from the other people on the panel or the people watching the panel to incorporating some very direct storytelling in the conversation? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's the piece that people don't hear enough of, right? And so everyone was, you know, paying attention on the edge of their seat just because, again, it was such unique information, so to speak. And I think more importantly, it helps, especially in a community that's the size of Cedar Rapids and kind of the makeup of Cedar Rapids, it helps people who do have better access to resources see that and then it encourages them and provides avenues for them to leverage those resources to some of these efforts that need to be addressed, right? And so I think having that kind of more specific call to action as opposed to like, okay, let's just talk about this topic and then go on our merry way. It's like, okay, here's a person who's connected to other nonprofits that probably need your help, either, you know, financial support, volunteer support, whatever. The way that you've described this is also helping me see just how that story or the process of storytelling became this bridge Mm -hmm. between, so the call to action and connecting people to that call to action. Because you said people were 
you know, on the edge of their seats listening because there was something to be invested in. There was a person right there to be invested in, as opposed to maybe figuring out how to wade through greenhouse gas inventory data, which is critical, but maybe doesn't feel that way for everyone if it's not directly connected to lived experiences of, of community members. Right. Exactly. And you talked about resources, like sharing these stories as a way to connect people to resources within the, within the community and share resources within the community. You've told me about Lynn County's resiliency hubs mm-hmm. and how initiatives like this can support community members as change makers of their own narrative. Can you tell us more about resiliency hubs themselves and how this initiative is helping the community reshape their own stories around climate change? Yeah, so our resiliency hub here in Lynn County, or at least our pilot one, has has been really motivated by the derecho event. And so thinking about, you know, kind of the major needs post derecho, you know, access to electricity, obviously, access to food and access to information. And so we have these three kind of foundational pieces of infrastructure, right, on this green space site. So a site that was formerly just being mowed, right? It's an underutilized part of Flynn County's property um, in a neighborhood that has, you know, a high percentage of low income and a high percentage of households of color and is connected to a mental health access center and then also is near a middle school. So kind of like a really, honestly, an ideal spot to have something like this. And so, you know, thinking about kind of what happened post derecho, you know, you're kind of in your home, you know, for me, I was in my apartment, so there's a few other people, you know, that I was around, but you like, I remember driving out after that and just seeing like the destruction and you're like, is everyone okay? How do I talk to them? Where do I go? What do I, like, what am I doing? You know what I mean? And so people tend to go to the places that they've gotten help from in the past. And so kind of in the in-between disaster times, right? Because that's the phase, the era that we live in now. It's not if a disaster mm-hmm. is going to happen, it's when. So in the in-between disaster times, really taking the time to build up these sites, these sites of community, really, by layering some of these social services over. So things that we've done at our site, for example, was a garden and nutrition class that was for the public. And then we also did a specific class for a local nonprofit that uh, serves black and brown and biracial students. And so Mm -hmm. it had some of the culturally relevant pieces to the curriculum that were incorporated as well. And so bringing kids out to these sites, right, to understand, you know, better understand local food systems. We've done rain barrel making events there, right? So people understanding upstream mitigation flood techniques, right? Or being able to, you know, build their garden, right? And so, and then also... Um, separate from that, we've rented out some of that site to a local, another local nonprofit, Feed Iowa First. And so they have um, their equitable land access program, which helps immigrant and refugee farmers get connected to growing space. And so through that partnership, you know, now we're, we're increasing access to land, right? And then in the future, there's a public health air quality monitoring site there. And so we want to put an agrivoltaic system that will offset the energy of that monitoring site with the payback of 12 years, so demonstrating fiscal responsibility, right? And then also demonstrating how ag and solar can can coexist, which if you've been reading mm-hmm. anything about Lynn County, you know that that's been kind of a point of tension 
here locally. So again, kind of having these base critical infrastructure pieces and then in the in-between disaster times, really building that sense of community resiliency on these sites as well. That's really wonderful. And I've heard you talk about the resiliency hubs before and this initiative, it's just, I don't know why initiatives like this don't exist in more places or why why this isn't kind of a go-to idea of how, yeah, how do we listen to the stories of what has happened during these disasters before and then create this new narrative of how we can, you know, attempt to be resilient, not just avoid the disasters, but be resilient when they do come and build that narrative, you know, before the next one happens. Yeah. ideally, so that that story changes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what right now what we're working on, because after we started that site, you know, people from a few other organizations reached out and said, hey, we want to make our, our location a resiliency hub too. What do we have to do? And so now we're working on standardizing kind of a model because the sites should be based off of the needs of that local community, right? So they're going to look a little bit mm-hmm. different depending on what the needs are. Um, And so how do we standardize it in a way that it's doing kind of that main goal or serving that main objective of providing that access point, but then also keep it flexible enough where, again, it's serving the actual needs. And so we're currently working with another nonprofit and then had very like early conversations with the hospital, but you could see how that would make tons of sense, right, to find avenues to, to really get some of these entities online, so to speak. And so... Part of that is against that standardization process and then also doing some mapping. And so trying to use some, you know, environmental justice toolkits, for example, to figure out what parts of the county really need sites like this. And again, some of those specific needs and then making it interactive in a way where, you know, communicates where these locations are, obviously, but then also allows other entities to kind of opt into the work. And so having an ability for a site to say, hey, you know, we really need a garden, but we don't have the capacity to do it ourselves. Can someone, you know, basically sign up to build that, right? And so master gardeners can say, okay, well, we can build gardens. We'll sign up and do that volunteer, Mm -hmm. you know, work one weekend. And, you know, so making it more interactive and making it, again, a community effort to figure out, you know, how do we help one another? How do we leverage our resources in the most efficient way? Thank you for sharing that. And you mentioned when you were talking about navigating these different resources and how to share what's working so that you can expand on those initiatives, that there's been this tension between solar and ag and how they, solar panels and ag and how they can coexist. And you mentioned earlier that you grew up visiting your grandparents' farm in Eastern Iowa. So how does your, yours and your family's own relationship with agriculture and farming and your own yeah story as a farming family how does that inform your approach to climate action and having these these conversations in ag communities yeah that's such a good question it's one of those things so I really hate when people assume my politics or anything about me really but and this is I'm sure partly why because you know my grandparents farm is like my most favorite place in all of the world you know I've been to how many countries how many cool things have I seen and like there's one trip in particular that stands out to me where I was one year I was coming back from India where I went from Delhi 
to my grandparents' farm. Like that was my start point to end point. And obviously, you know, it's not like I took a plane straight to the farm, right? But, and so like, I, and I remember going out, like getting to the farm and standing, you know, in the, in the yard, the acreage that the farmhouse is on and just like opening my arms and breathing the air and spinning around and looking around and seeing like clean air and so much space and just feeling like, you know, just like at peace and grounded and home. And so, you know, I, I think that sometimes people think that because I'm an environmentalist or because I'm a person of color even, or because I'm a climate scientist, mm-hmm. I don't know really what the cues are that I, that, you know, sometimes people will, will think that I don't understand it or I don't care about it or, you know, but that's, that's just not the case. And so, you know, and I, and I think on the opposite side of the coin, I guess, a lot of farmers, I can understand a lot of farmers frustration with, you know, hearing that you know, they're the problem, right? They're the problem with their water quality. They're the problem with our taxes. They're, you know, and, and that's too simplified, right? And I say, mm-hmm. I said this a couple of times, and I'm sure I'll say it again, no farmer is going to grow corn at a loss because they love it so much, right? They're growing right. corn and soybeans because that's what's incentivized. And you can get into the details and the weeds about, you know, if that's good or bad or whatever, but just to be clear about that point, you know, we shouldn't be villainizing people who literally are just trying to make a living, right? That doesn't mean that we don't take any action. It's just where does that action really need to be taken? So yeah, I think for me growing up, it's still my favorite place in the world. It's my full intention at some point to buy that and own that farm. Yeah, I, I would not be who I am if it wasn't for my experiences growing up there and, you know, thinking that, yeah, every little kid just goes to their grandparents' farm in the summer for two weeks and takes swimming lessons. Like, no, that's like a unique experience to you, right, Tam, me. And like that informs (laughs) and, and has shaped who you are. I'm really thankful for those experiences because I think it does help me be better in this role and understand the balance of some of these issues. And it sounds like it goes back to you intentionally listening to where people are coming from and meeting them where they're at because you have seen firsthand, as I think a lot of us maybe have in Iowa, how, yeah, people who farm or there's a variety of things like people who farm being villainized really for something that is systematically contributing to the problems and that you ask questions and listen to what people's stories are. What, how do they feel about being stuck in that system to some degree? Mm -hmm. What do they care about? What do they love? What do they want to see changed? And that you want people to ask you the same questions so they're not making assumptions about your relationship with farming or climate action or anything else and how they can or cannot be connected. Yeah. And that's a hundred percent it. And I can't obviously control, I can't make someone ask me a question, but it is like, and I want to highlight this. There is a farmer who owns quite a bit of acreage and some would probably consider to be an industrial farmer, right? Industrial scale farmer. I would consider him to be, I guess. And definitely conventional, pretty much, you know, down the line. And I was out on their combine one day doing this process, actually, 
whether or not, you know, I was saying that or we were calling it, you know, we, that wasn't really it. But doing this process, a storytelling con- relationship building process. And I asked them the question, why do you like to farm? And they were like, you know, like kind of like wrote it off. Like, <laughs> what do you mean? Why are you asking me a stupid question? Like, and I, you know, I like just waited, you know, as he like kind of, you know, let that out of his system. He was like, well, like my grandparents did it and my dad did it. And, you know, this is just like what my family does. Like we're, and so I was like, so you feel like a connection to the job, the action, the land, right? Like, and so it's just, I want to highlight that because a lot of the things that I think motivate environmentalists are not like absent in people who we perceive as not giving a crap about the environment, right? What right. That response was very similar to my own reasons of why I love my family's farm. And honestly, mm-hmm. the reason why I do climate research, right? So I guess I just, again, to, to really emphasize that point where it's not about the individual or person often, it is about those systems that need to be the focus, I think, of a lot of our our action. And it's about shared values too, that like we have more shared values than we would think because <laughs> right. we usually don't ask the questions that lead to sharing what we care about. Mm-hmm. So that's really important. It can make the whole difference. So you also, yet another thing that you've done, you've also co-founded a grassroots collective in Cedar Rapids called Advocates for Social Justice. This group has advocated for police reform, voter accessibility, derecho relief efforts, and more. Can you tell us a little bit more about the mission of this collective? Yeah, sure. So our organization, Advocates for Social Justice, or ASJ, formed after the murder of George Floyd in the summer of 2020. And so, you know, it honestly started as a protest. It's not, I didn't set out, I don't think any of us set out to start a nonprofit, you know, so be careful what you do, I guess, is the warning or the lesson there. (laughs) You might end up starting a nonprofit. Surprise. Yeah. So it really started because following this this national event, right? But then wanting to do something locally and recognizing that police brutality is something that affects every community. Literally every community has an example of that. And especially in Iowa, in Cedar Rapids, we also have data from the ACLU that really highlights that disproportionate policing for Black people in our community. And we also have, you know, a third of our general budget from the city at least in 2020, I haven't looked at the numbers for 2022, but at least in 2020, a third of that was going to the PD and 1% of that was going to the Civil Rights Commission. So, oh my gosh. Yeah. And so again, this I think is a space where it's about the system. It's not about the person. It's not about your friend who's a cop who's really nice or your mom who. Uh, used to be a cop and what it's not about whatever good person you're imagining who's a cop it's not about them whatever bad person you're imagining who's a cop it's probably not about them right it's about systems that are moving towards conclusions that they are designed to move towards right and figuring out if we like those conclusions and really looking at them really evaluating again back to the data if we see that people of color are arrested at 10 times the rate of white people for using marijuana, even though we know those usages are not the same, 
and I forget if it's 10 mm-hmm. or seven times because there's two different stats that I'm kind of mixing up, but seven or 10 times still pretty significant, right? And so if we, if we see this outcome, then what are we doing upstream to change that? that? And that's really it. So I would say, you know, the Black Liberation Movement, the Black Lives Matter Movement, sometimes, oftentimes has been misunderstood for a lot of reasons. But that to me is such an important distinction for at least the work of ASJ, where it's really looking at our systems and creating opportunities for others to do that, not just the PD. Mm-hmm. There are things like the Citizen Review Board, right? And then also having an honest conversation with ourselves as a city, collectively, as a community, and saying, hey, do we care about safety in this community? Okay. Do we care about safety for everyone in this community? Because that's the question that we really need to ask ourselves. And so ASJ, we started kind of in that lane, but we definitely have had to evolve because, again, the needs of our community. Most recently, a young woman, Devonna Walker, was stabbed to death, and her the person who murdered her was not arrested on site, was not arrested, which I still have not gotten a clear answer as to why. And so I say, I'm talking about this now for a couple of reasons, because I don't think that there was a lot of local media attention on it in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Change now, thankfully, a little bit. So I'm pleased to see that change. I'm saying her name because it's important that we really understand that this is not work that, you know, we're doing for fun, right? We're doing it because there are literal people like me, like you, that are dying as a result of not addressing it. And I'm and I'm saying this because though we started with some, you know, high level goals, which some you know, the we did create the second citizen review board in the state the first in, in our community, we still have six other demands that need to be addressed, some of which include a significant investment in DEI training for officers, which benefit the officers too, right? Because if officers right. are charged as a result of police brutality, that's not a good outcome either. That's not an outcome that people want, I think, for the most part. I don't want that. Right. <laughs> um, and then also decriminalization or legalization of marijuana because of the disproportionate impacts on people of color as a result of those charges, right? And to really, again, this is important because it's not like, okay, now I'm, I don't know, I'm charged with weed or whatever. It affects your ability to get a job. It affects your ability to get housing, right? It's not just like a, whoops, that's not actually a big deal. It it can change someone's life. Yeah, so those demands are still front of mind. And also it feels like there's always in this community someone who is caught in the system, is stuck in the system, is a victim of the system that's asking for help. And our organization has really done, I think, an incredible job of merging around those needs, of being flexible around those needs, and also building what I consider to be an incredible coalition of local organizations that are figuring out how to work together, which is amazing to see and be a part of. And that you're you're doing this relationship building work and showing that it can be effective yep. in so many spheres in the communities you're working in. Like you were talking about earlier, you know, figuring out ways to show what's working and to show what, what can make us more resilient mm-hmm. is really important and to share that story and amplify it. And you said, you know, in the work that Advocates for Social Justice is doing that you're asking questions of community members 
again, going back to all of the other work you've done about what do we care about? Mm -hmm. What are our values? What are the outcomes of these systems and this way of doing things? And do we want those outcomes? What other storytelling techniques does Advocates for Social Justice use to move towards policy change? We actually just recently had a town hall event this past Sunday. And so we had an attorney present, a a person who's been really connected to the family and helping kind of navigate the space. Because, of course, there's also like grief and pain around this incident, right, For, for everyone, but especially the family. And so being able to manage and balance, you know, kind of the activism and advocacy with those considerations is important. And so this individual has been helpful for that and so was was on the panel and then a few reps from our organization as well and then you know it was a town hall and so we invited the mayor of Cedar Rapids Tiffany O'Donnell we invited the Lynn County attorney Nick Maybanks and we invited the chief of police Chief German and none of them came and we had invited them you know leading up to that via email and this yeah so <laughs> The, wow. Yeah. It's hard. And so, you know, when we to connect this to storytelling, to, to your question, right, we had people there that had important pieces of the story. The family was there, but they weren't speaking by their own choice, right? But they had a rep. And so he was telling that part of the story, right? Who Who is Devonna Walker? You know, mm-hmm. we had an attorney there, right, to be able to tell the, the legal part of the story, right? Well, what what does the process look like and what are some considerations and, you know, which is an important part of the story, right? And then we have activists there, right, that can kind of contextualize this and, you know, kind of the environment, so to speak, of policing in Cedar Rapids. And I think, I genuinely think that the PD has an important part of the story, which obviously there's processes that they have to follow. And so there's limitations of how much of that story can come out now, but there's, that's a part of the story. And so even if, even if that person is there and can't say anything, it adds to the story, that physical presence Mm -hmm. adds to the narrative, adds to the story. The same is true for the County attorney, for the mayor, to me, the mayor is part of representing and telling the story of Cedar Rapids. And so if you're not in this room with all of these other people and not hearing about, you know, Devonna Walker and and what's being shared in that space by concerned family members and citizens, it's going to be hard for you to tell that story to other people. And so it feels like that story is in some ways being silenced that might not be the intention, but that feels like a reasonable outcome because if you're not there, if you're not with us in this space, telling the story, understanding the story, then how can you share it to anyone else? How, how do you, you don't know about it, right? So so that's, you know, we, we've done a few town halls. We did them when we were, again, trying to petition the city because keep in mind, none of, none of the policy changes came easy, right? They came after continual protests. And so that's another form of storytelling, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. We have a protest this Saturday. And so that will be another opportunity for community members, for activists to tell their story, continue to create this narrative. And I hope, I sincerely 
hope that our elected officials, our public officials, start to join in on creating this this story with us, you know? Yeah, we've talked a little bit about how you're not sure whether storytelling is as effective as we would hope with elected officials, but that stories can be a powerful way to catalyze community action for social and climate justice that can hopefully lead to policy change. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. And I think I was, I remember speaking pretty candidly about this topic, about stories being compelling for policy change. And I don't know, I'm not saying that there aren't electeds that are moved by stories and that, I'm sure that there are stories that, you know, they're people, right? So like, presumably the decisions and perspectives that they have, like come and at least in part from a story that they've heard or been told or shared themselves. So I'm sure that that can happen. I think that the most effective way for me and for others in my circle has been to tell stories to move people, right? To compel people to call their elected officials or to even do more research about the issue themselves. It doesn't necessarily even have to be an action that includes another person. And so I think, you know, just like knowing knowing a little bit about, like when I tell the story about Devonna Walker, for example, about Devonna Walker's murder, you know, it's like you can't help but feel connected to that. It's a young woman with two kids, you know what I mean? And you you see this, like you can describe the video, you can describe, you can, you know, show the photos and all of that. But it's like, when you hear those details, like I immediately am like, I'm 31, right? You know, and I'm like, that could have been Mm -hmm. me. And this is a person who, anyway, I, I won't get into the details, but it just, it's hard not to want to do something. And, you know, that means hopefully that action can, it should ideally be constructive, right? I'm not saying, like, go out and, like, yell at someone or anything like that. But, like, when you hear stuff like that, especially if you don't hear it a lot, it's super powerful, right? Like, George Floyd, the story of George Floyd literally was enough to move literally thousands of people in our community to action. And so the citizen review board would have never been passed. I'm almost a hundred percent certain of this without those people that showed up at that protest caring because when we presented, when we were having conversations with our elected officials at the time, they weren't taking us seriously. They weren't listening to us. That story was not enough to move them, but having multiple people moved by that story and then saying that to their electeds, that was enough to move them unanimously. A special, a special city council meeting on Juneteenth, in which there was a unanimous vote to approve a nonprofit's demands. That is huge. And that would not have happened without people being moved by that story, by our story. That's incredibly powerful. And going back to what you were saying too about creating a larger community narrative and that sharing one story of Devonna Walker, of George Floyd, and amplifying that story so that other people also begin to see how their own stories might connect or how they can share that story or they can share their own story, that it does matter. Mm -hmm. 
can, yeah, be a catalyst Mm -hmm. for action in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing about how those actions led to change in your community. Cause I think that's also really important for people to hear. This can happen. Mm-hmm. We can make choices that lead to change. And especially if we do it collectively mm-hmm. and figure out how to tell those stories in a more collective way. And I don't want to discount, you know, telling those stories directly to policymakers and electeds. I, I still think it's worth doing that. I still think public comment and all of that should be done. You know, it's more of just like this and, right? Right. That we also have to share it with each other. Exactly. Not operating in, yeah, little bubbles mm-hmm. of our own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do you see the work of Advocates for Social Justice connecting to your role as a climate action leader? I can't think of anything this isn't true for really, but, you know, much like policing disproportionately impacts people of color, the same is true for the effects of climate change. And also, you know, ability to access, you know, emerging technologies as well, right? There's a disproportionate access there too. So I guess, to me, they're super connected. But I think it goes back to just kind of my like worldview, where none of these things are just operating in a vacuum, right? They're all interfacing with one another. And so to me, that connection is really clear, whereas for others, it might not Mm -hmm. be. And so, you know, the simplified thing is, yeah, that disproportionality. But then also, just like more holistically, if you want someone to care about climate action, they have to have shelter. They have to have food. They have to feel safe. And so any kind of barriers to these basic human needs, which include over-policing, limits our ability to take action. Because again, this Mm -hmm. isn't something that a few of us can decide to do, unless I guess all of the industries are all of a sudden going to say, we're done, but (laughs) (laughs) don't think that's going to happen. So it really will take, you know, a tipping point of us. And we are by no means at that particular tipping point, unfortunately. So yeah, I think that those are, I think the work that ASJ does certainly contributes to creating safer communities for everyone and helps open up space, create space for people of color to be able to even start to think about caring about climate action, which is a luxury and privilege for a lot of us, right? Myself included. Absolutely. And it sounds like too, just the work you're doing is intersectional and interdisciplinary and working with a a large amount of your community because even talking about earlier like it's the people within your group it's community members and then you're also trying to bring in all of these voices from elected officials and making sure that you're actually in communication with the leaders of the systems that need to change too mm-hmm. and amplifying yeah, amplifying these connections that you're talking about that mm-hmm. maybe we feel like are really clear about the connections between social and climate justice, that those seem really clear, but we have to continue to amplify the narrative that all of this is interconnected. Right. And we have to address all of it together. Well, and I just think about, you know, like I when I started, at least, I was the only woman of color or Black woman in my PhD program. 
and like there's no one I get calls maybe like once every couple of months hey do you have do you know a person of color who would be good for this position we're really trying to diversify our team but we're having trouble finding or recruiting or whatever and so that's where the capacity building comes in right and so for any organization environmental organization that wants to do this work or wants to to really lean into that intersectionality I guess in, in that way you really need to build capacity first. And so if you're not creating structures and systems to do that, to provide opportunities for people of color to start to enter these spaces, then it's going to be a long time before there's a big enough pool of people of color, right? Because think about it, like, yeah, why do you want this person of color? Is your system set up, your, your existing infrastructure set up for this person to be successful when they come into this? Are you actually... This person probably is going to bring some ideas about change. Are you, how comfortable with, are you with change? How comfortable is your organization mm-hmm. with change? So I guess I just want to like highlight that point because I do feel like there's space for growth around kind of creating that clearer picture of the intersectionality of the Black liberation movement and the climate action movement. Yes. And recognizing that those connections have to start with building trust that earlier you're talking about assumptions and making assumptions about whether people trust certain environments to be a part of or trust people or have a relationship and that all of those things have have to come first if we're going to make change well thank you tam we are nearing the end so i want to ask you first of all to give us the three key ideas that you want people listening today to understand about the work that you do at the intersection of storytelling and climate action okay let's see the first one is always take the tea always take the coffee that's super important the second one is just don't stress it. You know what I mean? Like, don't overthink it. I feel like people get super in their head when they're like, hey, I really want this to like go well. And I know it's really important. So I'm going to like, plan the crap out of it. But like, just the more authentic and calm and natural you are, the better you will be able to connect and build relationships. And so the better stories you'll be able to tell. And then just listen. Like that is something that it's a, it's a, I don't even want to call it a trick because I actually really like it. But if you just listen and ask questions, that'll go a long way for the person to feel like they're actually being heard, right? They'll probably leave that conversation being like, I really like that person because they just talked about themselves most of the time. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And, and you'll learn something, right? Like, I don't know, I think about my thoughts all the time. And so I really like hearing about other people's thoughts because it usually inspires something new within my own ways of thinking. Right. And so, so just listen. Well, those are three great, not only takeaways, but I think recommendations, but I want to open it. What is, what is your biggest recommendation for other people who might want to use artistic and storytelling strategies to talk about climate change, especially in, in agricultural communities? Mm -hmm. I honestly think it's just like, Pretend like you know nothing, I guess. Pretend like the person is the expert because it'll help you see, like, it'll help you follow their path. And 
You might be surprised on where it leads. Yeah, I'm gonna t- I'm gonna end this in a story. I know it's supposed to be a takeaway, but I just it's connected, and so I want to end it in the story. You know, I I did this with a gentleman. I was asking him about climate change and why he thought he thought the things he did, and you know, he was taking me down his path. And at the end of it, he was like, "Well, I'm just dumb." And I never would have guessed that that's where the conversation started. And so he was perceiving, like, that's what he was thinking the whole time in that conversation. And what he was trying to defend is, like, being afraid to say that he was dumb or to think that he was dumb or whatever. Like, that's what he was thinking. And so I guess that would be my biggest recommendation is just pretend like you know nothing because, you know, you're going to leave that conversation and all your knowledge will still be there, but it might give you a, a really interesting glance into what is actually happening in some of these spaces. So that's that's my biggest takeaway. That's fantastic. <laughs> and yeah, that, that everyone is, you said this at the very beginning, that everyone is experts in their own way and we have to make room for that. Yep, absolutely. How can people listening connect with you and your work moving forward? I'm kind of like a, I have a low key, like social media presence, but I would say I do have a Twitter. Um, it's at taxpayer science at taxpayer science. I haven't really posted on there very often. So I would just say, you know, I'm a, I'm a talker. I'm a let's meet in person. So my email is on the website. Feel free to share some information. Cause yeah, I I'm always down for a conversation. I'm down to, to kind of hear what people have to say and if there's recommendations you know I want to about how I can improve my work then I want to welcome that too well great I will make sure whatever contact information you want to share is on the podcast web page so people can find it easily and, and keep up with the wonderful work you're doing and thank you so much again Tam for talking with me today and sharing all of all of these experiences and wisdom with our listeners. Thank you so much, Vivian. This was really fun. Thank you for listening to The Art of Climate Dialogue, and we hope you'll listen to the rest of the series. More information about podcast interviewees is available at ecotheaterlab.com. We invite you to engage in conversation with us by leaving a comment, responding to the short feedback form in our show notes, and checking out the Ecotheater Lab's website. We want to thank all of the organizations and individuals who made this series possible. This project is funded by both a North Central Region Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Program Graduate Student Grant, which is supported by the USDA's National Institute of Food and Agriculture, and a Johnson Center for Land Stewardship Policy Emerging Leader Award. Our podcast consultant is Mary Swander. Our podcast musician is Omar Cook Mercado. And our podcast artist is Mosel Nita Singh. Our podcast land acknowledgement is adapted from text developed by Lance Foster and Sakawa Snobis and from conversations with Shelley Buffalo. Rosie Marku Rowe is our podcast editor, and I'm Vivian M. Cook, Community Engagement Director for the Eco Theater Lab and the Art of Climate Dialogue, podcast producer and host. Take care. <laughs>